how does God feel? That might seem like an odd question. It might not be a question we've ever thought about before. But today we're going to begin looking at a book of the Bible that tells us how God feels. It's the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Hosea is one of what we call the minor prophets. There are 12 of them. And we don't call them minor because they're any less significant than the major prophets. It's just that these ones are shorter than the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Every one of the Bible's 66 books has a specific contribution to make. Something significant would be missing if any of the books were missing. And in the case of Hosea, something significant would be missing in our understanding of God. One writer says, No other book in the Old Testament includes such a detailed description of God's inner feelings as Hosea does. Another writer called Tim Chester gives this summary of the book of Hosea. In the message of Hosea, we see the passion of God. We see the jealousy of God, the commitment of God, the heartbreak of God, the enthusiasm of God, the love of God. People often talk about what they feel about God. Hosea tells us what God feels about us. Now I know that raises a whole lot of questions. How can God be jealous and still good? Can God really be heartbroken? Is it okay to say that? Well, in the book of Hosea, God says it. And in the weeks to come, we'll try and understand what it means to say God is jealous or God is heartbroken. What it means to talk about God's passion. But for now, we can just make a mental note. In this book, we will hear God say some things we might have thought unsayable. And at the root of all this is God's love. Hosea has been called the prophet of divine love. And the book starts with an opportunity for us to meet the family. So if you haven't already turned there, you'll find Hosea on page 901 of the church Bible or in the larger print Bibles, 1,400. And I'll read from the beginning of chapter 1 down to chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, The Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel. 
because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. This is God's word. And verse 1 dumps us straight into a period of history that might be pretty hazy to us. This is roughly 750 years before Jesus was born. And about 200 years before this point, so about 950 years before Jesus, Israel had been at its highest point. That was the time of King David and then David's son Solomon. Israel was a prosperous, united kingdom. But after Solomon's death, the kingdom split in two. There are 12 tribes, or there were 12 tribes in Israel. And when the split happened, the 10 northern tribes formed the kingdom of Israel, which was also referred to as Ephraim, because that was the most prominent tribe in the north. And sometimes it was referred to as Samaria, because that was the capital city of the north. So in the north, Israel, also known as Ephraim, also known as Samaria. And the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they formed the kingdom of Judah, which is just referred to as Judah. And you can see from verse 1, the kingship was changing hands pretty quickly at this point in history. Hosea was active as a prophet for about 25 to 30 years. His message was mainly directed at the northern kingdom, but it was also for Judah's ears. And during his ministry, Hosea saw a fair number of kings come and go. But despite the kingship changing hands a lot, this was a time of political stability. At least it was when Hosea began his ministry. Commentators tell us this period was characterized by three things. Political stability, great economic prosperity, 
and serious spiritual sickness. The people were complacent, they were self-indulgent, and they were spiritually confused. That sounds a bit like the situation you and I live in. Now that stability and complacency didn't last. During Hosea's ministry, things went downhill politically, and the nation began to get desperate. But for now, we can just notice the people Hosea ministers to We're not banging down his door, begging to hear from God. They were satisfied and comfortable just as they were. They were not people who were on a desperate search for God. They didn't feel a God-shaped hole in their lives. Their lives were going nicely. Why would they be interested in what a prophet had to say? If God's messenger is going to get people's attention, then God and his messenger will have to take some pretty drastic measures. And they do. Look again at verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, This land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. The words promiscuous, adulterous, and unfaithfulness are all translating the same word in the original language. And another translation brings that out. It says, go marry a whore and get children with a whore. For the country itself has become nothing but a whore by abandoning the Lord. That's a pretty strong opening. And it tells us Hosea's marriage is going to be more than just a marriage. His marriage is going to symbolize something much bigger. So his marriage will be real, and the personal pain he goes through will be real. But it's also going to be a miniature display of what God himself has gone through. If we read through the Old Testament, we find that prophets were sometimes called not just to speak their message, but to enact it. You find an example of that in the early chapters of Ezekiel, which you might want to look at sometime. Ezekiel was commanded by God to perform some pretty detailed street theater. Day after day, he repeated the theater to get his message across. But in Hosea's case, this is not theater. This is not acting a part. Hosea sacrifices a normal married life in order to confront Israel with their own prostitution. Hosea's marriage to a prostitute symbolizes God's experience with a people who are spiritual prostitutes. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And if we're going to understand this, we have to go back to an event the Bible takes us back to again and again and again. About 1,300 years before this, God spoke to a man called Abraham. And he said, 
I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What do the bride and groom say to one another when they get married? They don't actually say, I do. They say, I will. They make commitments to each other. And like a bridegroom, God said to Abraham five times, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. God committed himself. Abraham had done nothing to earn God's commitment. But God went to work keeping his commitment. He was faithful to Abraham and his descendants, like a husband faithfully loving his wife. But as the years went by, God had the experience of a husband whose wife keeps giving herself to other partners prostituting herself, giving her devotion and her loyalty and her trust to other lovers. What did that involve? It involved worshipping other gods, the gods of the nations around Israel. It involved trusting the strength of those nations for protection rather than looking to God. It involved chasing economic prosperity above justice and fairness. Living for power and self-indulgence and greed rather than living for holiness and service to God. Now, no doubt, when people saw Hosea marrying himself to a prostitute, they would have shaken their heads. They would have gossiped. They would have felt superior. But when Hosea began to speak, when he delivered the message that was being illustrated by his marriage, those people who had been feeling superior would be told, you are the prostitute. You as individuals and you as a people. You have been unfaithful to the divine husband, the one who committed himself to you, the one who said to you, I will, I will, I will. You have turned from the lover of your souls and given yourself to lovers who didn't love you, lovers who only wanted to use you and abuse you. That was Hosea's message to his audience in Israel. And what you and I need to see is Hosea's message is not just true of ancient Israel. This is the uncomfortable truth about humanity. We have a God who committed himself to humanity. God's I will included all peoples on earth. His promise to Abraham was in the end a promise to bless every tribe and every nation. 
God's commitment to Abraham was a commitment to you and me. But like Abraham's descendants, we have all been guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. We've all looked to other things for our satisfaction and our security. And in doing that, each of us has turned our back on the lover of our souls. We might wonder what difference this makes. What does this matter? Well, the next verses tell us. They describe the results of humanity's prostitution. Hosea marries a lady who's called Gomer, and they have three children. Actually, chapter 2 speaks about children of adultery. So it's unclear who the father is. That's how it goes in this kind of relationship. In any case, Hosea's children are given symbolic names. These children of a prostitute announce the results of humanity's prostitution. The first child is a boy. Verse 4 says, Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. If I say the word Auschwitz, what comes to your mind? You can participate at this point. Killing? Yeah. What about the psalm? The psalm. Yeah, massacre. Hiroshima? Same thing. The Twin Towers? Those are names of places that in our day immediately carry a connotation with them. They immediately bring something to mind, a horror. Well, in ancient Israel, the name Jezreel was associated in people's minds with bloodshed, massacre. An Israelite king called Ahab, with the, wife, with the help of his wife Jezebel, had murdered a man in Jezreel just to get hold of his vineyard. And later... A man called Jehu slaughtered Ahab's descendants at Jezreel. And 2 Kings tells us in the aftermath, Jezebel was thrown from a window, some of her blood spattered the wall, and the dogs of Jezreel devoured her flesh. It's gory stuff. It all happened in Jezreel, and it made the name Jezreel synonymous with bloodshed. So when Hosea showed his new son to his neighbors, and they all said, he's lovely. What's he called, Hosea? The answer was, bloodshed. This little guy is the fruit of my marriage to a prostitute. 
And his name shows all of you the fruit of spiritual prostitution. It doesn't end well. It ends in bloodshed. It ends in destruction. When human beings turn from the lover of their souls, when they give themselves to other loves, when they're greedy for personal gain and hungry for power, the results are Auschwitz, the Somme, Hiroshima, Jezreel. Through Hosea's son, God says to Israel, your lust for other lovers is going to end in bloodshed. And it will be severe. It will end the kingdom of Israel. I will break Israel's bow means I will break her military strength completely. She will be totally defeated. And that defeat would come from the Assyrians. Not long after this, they conquered Israel and they took the Israelites into exile. For hundreds of years, God has been patient with faithless Israel. But now the result of her prostitution is coming. The kingdom of Israel is going to end in bloodshed. At the edge of the valley of Jezreel, there was a city called Megiddo. And so at that time, sometimes the valley of Jezreel was called the plain of Megiddo. The very last book of the Bible uses the Greek form of that word. It's Armageddon. The place that in the Old Testament stood for a decisive bloody battle is used in the book of Revelation to describe a decisive bloody battle at the end of history. God promises that the end result of spiritual prostitution, the ultimate fruit of that is the destruction of those who will not turn from their prostitution. That's Hosea's first child. Verse 6. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. What would Hosea's neighbors have made of this one? Here's my daughter. She's not loved. And the message is, those who chase other lovers do not experience the love of God. We'll see in a moment, this is not a statement about God's love coming to an end. It means we cannot experience God's love while we are giving ourselves to a life of spiritual prostitution. That would be just as impossible as a husband or wife enjoying the experience of their spouse's love while they're out giving themselves to other people. When we chase things that are not God, we find ourselves starving for the love of God. 
We might not know that's what we're starving for, but it is. That longing that keeps driving us on after more money or more relationships or more recognition and praise from people. If we only knew it, that is really a longing for the only love that can satisfy us. The fruit of spiritual prostitution is that we're left starving for the love of God. We've seen God has promised an end to the kingdom of Israel. That end would be brought about by the Assyrian army. But in verse 7, God promises the Assyrians will not overrun the southern kingdom, Judah. That's not that Judah was particularly better than Israel. But God is saying it will not be the Assyrians who defeat Judah. Their defeat will come. It will come a bit later at the hands of the Babylonians. There comes a time when God gives people what they choose. They receive the consequences of their decisions. And Hosea announces that time has come for Israel. But it has not yet come for Judah. Then in verse 8, we're introduced to Gomer's third child. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. God says, it is a farce to call you my people. You follow other gods, you love other things. You might still want me as a kind of national mascot. You might want me on standby to get you out of trouble. But let's not pretend, God says, that you have any real relationship with me. Let's not pretend you have any genuine commitment to me. You're not my people. Sometimes couples talk about defining the relationship. In other words, let's get things clear about where we stand with one another. And here God is defining the relationship for Israel. You have prostituted yourselves to other lovers. You might still want me in the background as security, but that's not how it works. The reality is, God says, you are not my people and I am not your God. We said earlier, all of us have been guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. We've all looked to other things for our satisfaction and our security. We are all Gomer. Promiscuous with our affections unfaithful to the lover of our souls. And the fruit of our unfaithfulness is estrangement from God. We live with no experience of God's love. And we're headed for total defeat. Now that kind of clarity might make us uncomfortable, but it's important. 
Better to have the relationship defined for us than to go on thinking everything's okay. That maybe God is all right with our unfaithfulness. That maybe it's fine for us to treat him as a backup who we look to just when we're in trouble. It's better to know the truth about our desperate situation because then we're ready to hear about our only hope. Mark Dever says, Gomer's only hope was in a love that she never deserved. And this is your only hope as well. Through Hosea, God has defined the relationship for Israel and for all of humanity. But now comes the renewed promise of God's faithful love. Look at verse 10. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. We noticed earlier, long before this, God had committed himself to humanity. Five times he said to Abraham, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And God's I will included all peoples on earth. And throughout Abraham's life, God repeated that I will many times. And verse 10 is a reminder of God's I will. This promise to create a people as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That comes directly from God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Through Hosea, God is saying there is no doubt about humanity's unfaithfulness. But let there be no doubt either about my faithfulness. I promised Abraham I will, and I will. I will overcome humanity's unfaithfulness. I will fulfill my promise to Abraham. I will have a people who are saved by my love. A people who experience the satisfying reality of my love. A people who respond to my love with lives of faithfulness. In verse 11, God promises a united people. There will be one kingdom of God. No longer divided like Israel and Judah were in Hosea's day. And they will have one leader. And they will come up out of the land. That's a play on words. On one level, that means the Israelites will return eventually from their time in exile. They haven't been exiled yet, but God has told them it will happen. Here, he promises it isn't going to last forever. 
but they will come up out of the land could also be translated, they will spring up from the earth. And that makes sense when we notice the word Jezreel reappears here in verse 11. We've seen that in Hosea's day, Jezreel stood for bloodshed. That's what it represented because of the many bloody things that had happened there. But bloodshed is not the literal meaning of the word Jezreel. The actual meaning of the word is God sows. And here the message is, even in the midst of humanity's unfaithfulness and the bloodshed that comes along with it, God is sowing. God is working for the future. And one day, God's sowing will produce a harvest. It's not going to be crops that spring up from the earth. It's going to be a people. In a faithless world, God himself will produce a faithful people. He will fulfill his I will to Abraham. Great will be the day of Jezreel. Out of the destruction and the pain caused by human unfaithfulness, God is going to bring a harvest of life and faithfulness. The children of prostitution will become children of the living God. The unloved will experience God's love. When did this harvest come? Well, the New Testament tells us it began with Jesus Christ. He brought the day of Jezreel. Jesus experienced in his own body the bloodshed that comes from human unfaithfulness. Jesus was crucified by the people he came to save. But Jesus brought about the other aspect of Jezreel too. His dead body was like seed sown in the ground. When Jesus rose from the dead, the harvest began. The New Testament tells us he rose as the first fruits of a great harvest. And that harvest is wider than just Israel. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says this, Who is it makes up this harvest? Surely, Paul says, it is even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. When we come to Jesus Christ and put our trust in him, we who were cut off from God become part of the people of God. We who are dying without God's love begin to experience his love. And so if you have never owned up to your unfaithfulness, if you have never admitted that you are Gomer, do it today. 
come to the one whose love never fails. Come to Jesus and you will find love you never deserved. Come and God will say to you, my loved one. And if you are a Christian, let this passage remind you, there is no satisfaction outside of God. No one will ever love you like him. Apart from him, we will always find ourselves starving for love. Maybe all of us in greater or lesser ways need to turn back today to the lover of our souls. We have an opportunity to do that as we Sing together, O perfect love, love that comes to us through Jesus Christ. Let's sing this together.